Cast family, I'm Chad Bolkelman, and welcome to episode number nine of Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern and Green Arrow. I will just go ahead and get right into it. We are actually covering uh, Green Lantern number eighty. This is a or Green Lantern Green Arrow number eighty, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, cover dated for October of uh, 1970, but it, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, its actual on sale date was approximately August 25th uh, of, uh, of 1970. So, um, yeah, we're almost upon that anniversary, actually. Uh, writer was Denny O'Neill, pencils by Neil Adams, inker was Dick Giordano, and editor was, the, of course, the incomparable Julie Schwartz. Um, the title for this issue was Even an Immortal Can Die, uh, and the, uh, the cover features uh, Hal, Ollie, uh, and Appa, all with uh, restrained with some sort of uh, uh, metallic gag over their mouths, and a gun pointed at them with a judge presiding over them, and it says, Guilty, Conspiracy Trio Sentenced to Die, and this is kind of in a newspaper headline layout, and it says... Uh, uh, judge says trial was fair and impartial. Justice prevailed today as three men were sentenced to the death chamber for crimes against humanity. One, a member of the famous Green Lantern Corps, protested the evidence and moved for a retrial. The motion was denied without prejudice by the pres- by presiding judge of intergalactic of intergalactic court court genocide division. <laughs> so yeah, Green Lantern number eighty. We're just gonna go ahead and hop right into the the story again, entitled "Even an Immortal Can Die." And uh, as always, I'm going to kind of read snippets occasionally of uh, of the uh, story direct from the issue just because, you know, I like Denny O'Neill's prose and I figure, yeah, what the hell, why not? So we open with uh, Hal and Ollie and their civilian guys uh, loading up the truck uh, while uh, the Guardian kind of looks around at the scenery. And the caption box here says, he is a guardian, one of the elect band of immortals whose self-appointed task is to police the galaxy, maintaining balance and restoring order. These past five months, he has sojourned on the planet Earth in the company of men known as Green Lantern and Green Arrow, looking and learning the ways of people who cherish their few years of life because it must end so terribly soon. Although he is countless eons old, such has been his sheltered existence that he is innocent as a bright child. Pity this poor guardian, for his childhood is almost past. This is his story. Uh, we open up with uh, Hal and Ollie and the guardian on the road in the truck. Um, Ollie's t- saying that, uh, you know, we've, we've crossed the country twice now. We, we should give it up, you know. We just need to we need to take some time and, and kind of think about everything we've learned, essentially. And the, the guardian uh, kind of agrees with him, and then they get run off the road, or a bridge, rather, and into the water. Um... Ollie, or Hal rather, forms a couple construct bubbles, and while he's at it, he goes ahead, goes ahead and, uh, you know, clothes Ollie in his uh, green arrow gear. Uh, they pop up out of the water, um, you know, kind of exasperated, Ollie's cussing and stuff, uh, and 
Hal says, you know, we, sh- we should be able to hitch a ride on that passing boat to this little barge that's going by them. And the Guardian asks, well, why, why do you not use your ring to convey us? And Hal says, because I promised Green Arrow to play this little odyssey strictly human whenever possible. So they board the ship. They're welcomed by the captain. Uh, and they ask him what his cargo is. And he says, uh, waste, poison, used in making plastics the government just outlawed. We're taking them to a place where they can be disposed of, broken down and disposed of. Well, right as he's telling them this, uh, one of the shipmates approaches the captain and says, uh, the boiler is overheated. Hal asks if he can help, um, and the, he, he said, the captain says, I mean, not really, not unless ring, uh, you know, ship repair and, uh, and machine repair is part of your repertoire with the, with the ring. Uh, Hal says he can't, and then right as they do that, the ring blows, or the, the boiler blows, explodes, and knocks Green Lantern out, um, everything's below decks is on fire, and it's at that point, uh, that Ollie says, you know, to the Guardian, hey, you know, you have lantern power. Remember, uh, you know, uh, Hal telling me that the Guardians are like giant, their bodies are like power rings. And uh, the Guardian says, yeah, but I've been on your planet for so long, it's weakened me. I can transport the Green Lantern of Earth or save this vessel, but performing both tasks is beyond my abilities. The greatest good for the greatest lies in the second choice, the choice which means death for the mortal I can call friend. Uh, and even though uh, he knows this, he opts for the former and takes care of uh, Hal and whisks him off to get uh, medical attention. As he does that, he turns around and sees everybody dumping all the chemicals into the water. And he yells at them, and they, uh, you know, we've got no choice. The gunk in these barrels is explosive, and in case you haven't noticed, the deck's getting hot. Unless we dump them, we all go up like a pack of Roman candles. Um the captain says, you know, don't be mad at me. I didn't like dumping it either. And Ollie says, it's not you, sailor. It's the greedy scruffs who made the slop in the first place. The, the next morning at the nearby hospital, Ollie meets Hal and the guardian outside of the hospital. Hal's doing okay. Uh, all of a sudden, from a voice from on high says, attention lawbreaker on the planet Earth. And uh, the Guardian says he is the one who's being addressed, and it's the Guardians. And they say, you have erred grievously. You have placed the welfare of a single individual above that of a whole world. Already Earth's natural systems are badly disrupted. You have abetted further disruption by deserting the burning vessel. And the Guardian fesses, uh, Apis fesses up to this. Uh, he says he's guilty. Uh, Ollie tries to leap to his defense, saying he was saving a friend. Uh, and the Guardian says, in your terrestrial emotion, Green Arrow, you fail to see that our fellow's act was actually cruel. He has bequeathed yet un- to yet unborn generations a heritage of a racked environment. Like you humans, he has traded the splendor, beauty, and health of your world for immediate comfort. It is a bargain we cannot condone, therefore our fellow is summoned to Gallo, the place of the Tribune. They ask, Hal and Ollie ask to accompany him, they are granted that permission, uh, the Guardian, ex- uh, Hal explains what Gallo is. It's a small satellite uh, at the edge of the galaxy. It's a There's a race even older than the Guardians there, a group devoted, devoted to studying the immutable laws of creation and holding court, judging those who violate those laws. 
but before they leave, Hal charges his ring. They arrive on Gallo, and they're immediately greeted by one of the robots who asks them to immediately surrender all of their weapons. Uh, right away, the Guardian knows something is up because the, uh, the, he says, thinks to himself, the automaton omitted the welcoming ritual. Uh, uh, Oliver declines, uh, starts fighting the robot, throws a punch, does nothing so he knows when he's outclassed and gets rid of his arrows. Um, the uh, robot says to accompany them to the sun chamber where the trial will be held. Hal kind of whispers to the Guardians, is there something wrong here? Um, and the Guardian kind of confirms, you know, it's not what I expected. Maybe their customs have changed. They get taken uh, to the judge, and he says, let the wrongdoer step to the dais. Let the right of vengeance begin. Uh, Ollie says, well, he's been accused. He's not a proven baddie, and I don't like the sound of that word vengeance, says Hal. And there's just a single judge, says the Guardian. It's the custom of the Tribune that there be several. Several, and then the robot says one judge is su sufficient for one such as you. Ollie wants to testify regarding the uh, in good intentions and character of the guardian. The judge tells him to shut the hell up. The bailiff, you know, bailiff, which is yet another robot, you know, clamps down all around their mouths to shut him up. Court is in session. Uh, uh, bailiff reads the charge again. Yet another uh, robot. This member of the guardians of Oa was lax in just in discharge of duty, and so caused the annihilation of a world. The judge says since the accusation was brought in by the, against him by the other guardians, there can be no doubting its truth. Jury, what's your verdict? The jury is completely comprised of robots. Um, they recommend the death penalty. The um, they're all going to be taken into holding cells until tomorrow morning, where they'll be where the guardian will be executed. The guardian is separated from Hal and Ollie. They're tossed into a uh, containment place with the original members of the Tribune. Um, they, you know, Hal asks, well, then who was the judge? They explain that he was their master mechanic. Uh, the task, he had the task of maintaining the robots. Um, he, they say he, you know, him and his metal police revolted. Uh, so intent on the fine points of the galactic law we were that we did not even observe our servant becoming insane. Um... Hal is looking at the door. He's like, well, there's not, there's no guards or anything. There's no bars, no locks. What's keeping us from walking out? There's a giant sentry out there, robot. Uh, he gets zapped. Uh, and the dogs... Uh, the the uh, robot's name is Cerebus. <laughs> or Cer Cerebus. And he's invincible. Uh, Ollie starts making himself a... Fashioning himself a bow and arrow. Uh, he gets everything taken care of. And then he reveals that... While he was initially going up against the robot that welcomed them when they arrived on Gallo, he slipped an explosive arrowhead off of one of his arrows and slipped it into his belt. Uh, and he says, uh, "A gimmick. It's a gimmick containing enough explosive to fix ten Cerebuses. Uh He fires it, blows up the robot. Hal and Ollie sneak out. Um, they find the robot that has uh, their bow and their all their weapons. Uh, Hal tries to fake out the robot, saying, we've been acquitted, mind giving me back my ring. The robot's having none of this, impossible, the judge never acquits anyone. Uh, then uh, Hal and Ollie and the Tribune included all go up against the robot. Hal gets his ring back, melts it down to, you know, just a puddle. Uh, 
And then all of a sudden, bong, 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 and the tribune goes, it's the doom knell, the, sig the signal for the beginning of e executions. They all rush to take care of the guardian to save him. The uh, judge is trying to gloat. He says, you know, all, plastic, aluminum, these are all the inheritors of the universe. Flesh and blood have had their day, and that day has passed. Uh, men, keep, men keep machinery in slavery, therefore they are guilty of impeding progress. My mission is to met out punishment to criminals like yourself. Simple justice, I call it. The method of death for the Guardian is going to be basically, he's going to be encased in plastic and suffocated to death. Hal and Ollie are still trying to rush to find him. They encounter a few more robots and, you know, take them out. Suddenly some uh, kind of uh, weapons and guns swivel out of the wall and start spraying gas. It's kind of hard for Hal to concentrate. Uh, he uses the fact that, you know, his friend is in danger and everything to uh, summon the will to make a construct fan to blow all the gas out of the area. They'd find the execution chamber. They barge into the room and start destroying robots left and right. Uh, but it's too late. The Guardian has been encased in plastic. Hal says, please don't let the ring fail me. We may not be too late. Meanwhile, Ollie takes out uh, the judge by uh, blowing up his little swivel, uh, his little swivel chair. He's the whole time this judge is sitting on this chair that's kind of like conveying him throughout the complex over the heads of everybody else. So Ollie just takes out the arm of this chair and knocks him on the ground. Um, and uh, it turns out Old Timer is still alive. He says, you know, how'd you survive? And uh, the Guardian says, quite simply, I merely held my breath. On your earth, I learned a valuable lesson. And Hal goes, and that is? And the Guardian says, where there is life, there is hope. Uh, the Tribune expressed their gratitude. Uh, you know, we'll reinstate ourselves as, uh, on the bench of justice. And Ollie says, you certainly want to? I mean, you blew it once, right? Can you guarantee you won't again? Uh, they, you know, think they'll consider that for a little while. Hal says, you know, come, you know, to the, the Guardian, you know, we'll return to Earth. And the Guardian says, you must go without me. I stand accused of a crime still. I shall ask judgment of my fellow Guardians. Uh, Ollie says, you know, that's your call. And, you know, good luck and God bless. And then Hal, as they all depart, the Guardian says, I hope they won't be harsh on him. He's good people. And Ollie responds with, yeah, let's leave this mud ball. And the end. Uh, so not bad of an issue. Um, probably the cover is definitely one of the more notable ones. I know I said that about the last issue with the uh, Native American uh, angle to it, but you know almost every single one of the covers from the uh, from the Green Lantern Green Arrow series is is fairly notable. But I mean, this one is like a newspaper headline. It says guilty. It's it's in black and white. It's it's very different from some of the other covers that you see in the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Green Lantern, Green Arrow run. Um, again, this was published uh, October 1970 with an on-sale date of August 25th of 1970. Um, the art, I mean, it's Neil Adams. What do you, what do you want from him? Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty great uh, throughout. The look of tense anger on Ollie's face as they dump the chemicals into the river. Uh, the look of worry on his face on the next page. Uh, right before the Guardians kind of address everybody, you know, the close-up action shots, you know, the close-up more emotive shots of people's faces. One of the, one of my particular favorite panels is the, uh, the panel where the Guardian says, you know, where there is life, there is hope. Uh, that's a pretty cool looking panel, very well drawn. 
I mean, I don't have much to say about the art, but I don't have anything bad to say, really. I mean, it's it, it again, it is Neil Adams in the 1970s, so um, there is not much to be <laughs> to be said uh, in uh, protest to to the artistic styles of this issue. And maybe he could have been a little more creative on, in terms of the robots, um, but at least not. Uh, I don't I don't see very many robots that look exactly the same. So at least you know. Um, Neil was, you know, taking his, taking his uh, artistic styles uh, a little further to to uniquely design certain different robots. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, they kind of remind me of some of the robots you'd see um, uh, on Yulum, uh, Y L U M. That's uh, the planet that uh, Nexus is from uh, in the Nexus series. Um, so they they kind of remind me of those if you guys are familiar with that series. I mean the writing. There's there's nothing really wrong with the writing uh, in my mind. It is a little um, stylized, um, flamboyant uh, in, in in some places, uh, you know, dramatic. But you know that's kind of uh, par for the course with the Green Lantern Green Arrow series. Uh, as always, I like to tell you guys more specific um, historical implications for the. Um, uh, you know, for the social issues being addressed in the particular issue. You know, each one had a, each issue issue kind of tackled a social issue. Clearly, this one is the environment. Uh, more in particular, the direct knowing harm that we as a society are uh, placing on the environment, the strain that we're putting on it, um, and the um, reckless abandonment with which we just dump our waste uh, and harmful chemicals into the water and to uh, the, the environment. There will be more spotlight on environmental issues as the series goes on, but uh, as of right now, they are kind of focusing here on plastic uh, and chemicals. And now, normally I'd have much more specific research for you guys, but you know when I when the, when I come across these social issues, I try to encapsulate these social issues in just a few words or less, uh, you know, two or three words or less, and then tie, tack on the time period on there. So you know, like in this case, uh, chemical dumping in the 1970s, um, uh, late 1960s, and whether that provides me with the information. 100% relevant to this issue uh, is a gamble each and every time. Clearly, you know, a couple issues ago we had the uh, Charles Manson stuff, and that's it's easy to tell what in particular that storyline was referencing and getting more specific information. This one is just kind of, uh, at least to me, a little vague. So uh, I pulled up a couple of things. Uh, the first thing I have here is a report that uh, I found on uh, the USA Today website, and I don't have a date on this, but uh, the title is Report, Army Secretly Dumped Chemicals Offshore. Okay, so... And again, uh, we're just reading from this, so apologies. Uh, the Army secretly dumped 64 million pounds of nerve and mustard agents into the ocean, along with 400,000 chemical-filled bombs, landmines, and rockets, either tossed overboard or ha packed into the holds of scuttled vessels, according to an in investigation by the 
uh, uh, Newport News, Virginia Daily Press. Um, and no, this is not uh, some sort of a conspiracy website. This is an actual uh, report. So, yes, this happened. Um, there are several different uh, uh, things here, but I highlighted a couple of them. Uh, the weapons of mass destruction may still be deadly and were dumped along with more than 500 tons of radioactive waste from World War II until 1970, after which Congress and International Treaty banned the practice. Uh, the newspaper's investigation also found the chemical weapons were dumped in at least 26 locations off the coast of 11 states, 6 east coast states, 2 on the Gulf Coast, California, Hawaii, and Alaska. Few, if any, state officials have been informed of their existence. Five dump sites are off the coast of Virginia. The Army dumped most much of its overseas World War II stockpiles off the coast of 16 other countries. Hundreds of fishermen have been injured over the years from them. A drop of nerve agent can kill within a minute. When released in the ocean, it lasts up to six weeks, killing every organism it touches before breaking down into its non-lethal chemical components. Mustard gas can be fatal. When exposed to seawater, it forms a concentrated encrusted gel that lasts for at least five years, rolling around on the ocean floor, killing or contaminating sea life. Craig Williams, director of the Chemical Weapons Working Group in Kentucky, a grassroots uh, citizens group, says the perception that the perception at the time was the ocean is vast. It would absorb it. Certainly, it is insane in retrospect that they would do it. It would be inevitable. I assume all of this will be will be released into the ocean at some point or another. So. Normally, I like to provide a personal reaction to this, but instead, I am just going to reread those opening few uh, sentences. The Army secretly dumped 64 million pounds of nerve and mustard agents into the ocean, along with 400,000 chemical-filled bombs landmines, and rockets. All of that dumped into the ocean by our government. Uh, and there's more. Uh, I also pulled up a uh, Wikipedia entry that I found. Um, now, whether or not this is the same practice or not, uh, I wasn't able to confirm, but it kind of sounds like it is. There was an operation by our military called Operation Chase. And if you thought that everything I just told you wasn't crude enough, guess what Chase stood for? Cut holes and sink em, E-M. So Operation Chase was a United States Department of Defense program that involved the disposal of unwanted munitions at sea from May of 1964 into the early 1970s. The disposal program involved loading old munitions into onto ships, which were then slated to be scuttled once they were up to 250 miles offshore. The chemical weapons disposal site was a a three-mile area of the Atlantic Ocean between the coast of the United States of Florida and the Bahamas. Now, 
there are small paragraphs for each of the quote-unquote chases. There are 12 entries. So chase one. The mothballed C-3 Liberty ship John F. Schafforoth was taken from the National, the National Defense Reserve Fleet at uh, Suisun Bay and towed to the Concord Naval Weapons Station for stripping and loading. A major fa fraction of the munitions in Chase 1 was Borf, B-O-F-O-R-S Bofors, 40mm gun ammunition from the Naval Ammunition Depot at Hastings, Nebraska. Chase 1 also included bombs, torpedo warheads, naval mines, cartridges, pro projectiles, fuses, detonators, boosters... Overage UGM-27 Polaris motors and a quantity of contaminated cake mix an Army Court had ordered dumped at sea. It was sunk 47 miles off of San Francisco on the 23rd of July in 1964 uh, with uh, 9,799 tons of musician, munitions. That was just one chase vessel. Chase 2, 7,348 short tons of munitions. Coastal Mariner, which was Chase 3, was loaded with 4,040 short tons of munitions. Chase 4 was loaded with 8,715 tons of munitions. Chase 5, 8,000 tons of munitions. Chase 6 was loaded at the Naval Weapons Station Earl, rigged for detonation at 4,000 feet and detonated in 1966. Chase 7 was loaded with overage UGM-27 Polaris motors. Chase 8, the first chemical weapons disposal via the program was in 1967 and designated Chase 8. Chase 8 disposed of mustard gas and GB-filled M55 rockets. Chase 9 was sunk on 19, in 1967. Chase 10 dumped 3,000 tons of United States Army nerve agent-filled rockets encased in concrete vaults, because, you know, that's going to stop it. Uh, and Chase 11 was uh, 1968 and sealed in 10 containers, T-I-N. And Chase 12, August of 1968, uh, disposed of mustard agent uh, and the final mission to dispose of chemical weapons, Aftermath. Operation Chase was exposed to the public during a time when the Army was under increasing public criticism especially the Army's Chemical Corps. Chase was one of the incidents which led to the near disbanding of the Chemical Corps in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Concerns were raised over the program's effect on the ocean environment as well as the risk of chemical weapons washing up on shore. The concerns led to the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act of 1972, which prohibited future such missions. Again, apologize, apologies that I'm not being a little bit more concise in my recollection of that, but I kind of feel like those stats speak for themselves. Whether or not this directly relates to Green Lantern uh, number 80 in terms of this specific information being what um, uh, Denny and Neil were trying to uh, uh, raise public awareness about uh, remains to be seen. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of this didn't come to light until several years after... Uh, uh, this issue was published. But clearly it was a um, consistent concern at the time, uh, specific instances notwithstanding. I also have an entry, for, again from Wikipedia. I found something uh, called 
referenced uh, as the Love Canal. Now, I can hear the snickering in the audience. <laughs> I am not referring to that Love Canal. Um, the Love Canal is a neighborhood, or, or not not the, but Love Canal is a neighborhood in Niagara Falls. Okay. So I highlighted a, a couple of things in here. In the mid-1970s, Love Canal became the subject of national and international attention after it was revealed in the press that the site had formerly been used to bury 22,000 tons of toxic waste by Hooker Chemical Company, now called Occidental Petroleum Corporation. There's tons of information here. I've got about 11 pages on Love Canal, but I highlighted a few passages. In the 1920s, the canal became a dump site for the city of Niagara Falls, with the city regularly unloading its municipal refuse into the pit. By the 1940s, Hooker Electrochemical Company, later known as Hooker Chemical Company, founded by Elon Hooker, began searching for a place to dump the large quantity of chemical waste it was producing. Hooker was granted permission by the Niagara Power and Development Company in 1942 to dump wastes into the canal. The city of Niagara Falls and the Army also continued dumping of refuse. This dump site was in operation until 1953. During this time, 21,000 tons, 21, tons of chemicals such as caustics, alkalines, fatty acids, and chlorinated hydrocarbons from the manufacturing of dyes, perfumes, solvents for rubber, and synthetic resins were added. These chemicals were buried at a depth of 20 to 25 feet, and after 1953, the canal was covered with soil, and vegetation began to grow atop the dump site. So, they dumped not just regular trash, but chemicals and toxic waste into the ground. Then they closed the area, covered it up with soil, and vegetation started to grow. At the time of the dump's closure, Niagara Falls was entering an economic boom, and the population began expanding drastically, surpassing 85,000. The Niagara Falls City School District School district needed to needed land to build new schools and attempted to purchase the property from Hooker Chemical that had been used to bury toxic waste. Hooker had initially refused to sell, citing safety concerns. However, the school district refused to relent, and eventually, faced with the parts of the property being condemned and or ex, uh, expropriated, Hooker Chemical agreed to sell on the condition that the board, school board buy the entire property for one dollar. To be certain that the school board knew it was getting into what it was getting into by taking the canal, Hooker escorted school board members to the canal site and made test borings right in front of them. They told them how dangerous this land was. They put all sorts of warnings in the contract. They showed them what was going on. The school board needed the land and bought it anyways for the dollar. But they had a plan and they would not change it. So... They started construction, and upon completion in 1955, 400 children attended the school, and it opened along with several other schools that had been built to accommodate students. In that same year, a 25-foot area crumbled, exposing toxic chemical drums, which then filled with water during rainstorms. This created large puddles that the children enjoyed playing in. And there's all kinds of 
information here, uh, as you may be aware, talking about the aftermath of this, uh, health effects, birth defects, um, uh, miscarriages, um, cancer stuff. I mean, there's... It's bad. Uh, and this school board knew about it. And they built the school there anyways. I mean, of course, some blame has to be placed on Hooker Chemical for actually dumping stuff into the ground in the first place. But hey. You know. <laughs> I just... With things like uh, Charles Manson, uh, with things like racial tensions between, uh, you know, uh, majority races and things like, you know, Native American culture, um, with things like uh, just the concept of environmentalism, the concept of religion, um, you know, the concept of drug use, you know, one can kind of... Um, make a philosophical argument uh, and relate their own personal experience to such things. With this, guys, it's just fact. Do, do any of us really believe that dumping chemicals and toxic waste into the water or into the ground is a good idea? Like, is anybody on the other side of the issue? And if anybody is on the other side of the issue, does anybody out there, or the people against... Uh, on the side of logic, do they really think it's even worth arguing with these people or are they just morons? Because kids playing in toxic waste and the army just going, uh, well, we got to get rid of this stuff somehow. So let's just, you know, we're going to condemn these vessels anyways. So let's just fill them with chemicals and sink them into the ocean with explosives like, I, I, I get that, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, guys, and it's one of the, the pitfalls of doing a solo podcast is not having anybody to do the other side of the conversation. You know, in, in, in future episodes, I will be having guests uh, on more notable issues of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Not that this one is, isn't notable, but, um, you know, whether it be... Uh, experts in a certain field or people who are, you know, just genuinely fans of one particular issue over uh, the others of Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Um, so the fact that, you know, I don't have much to say commentary-wise on this situ this uh, social issue um, makes me feel that, you know, I'm, I'm being uh, a, a bit dull to the listener, uh, to you the listener. But... Um, I mean, this is the only way. That's this is the only way I can describe it, guys. I mean, like the these are cold hard facts, and I cannot see an opposing argument to support this sort of blatant environmental disregard. I just like <laughs> I, I, there's nothing else I can say now. Again. Love Canal, Operation Chase, um, all of these things may not be specifically sp the specific instances that Denny and Neil were, were trying to convey to the public, but it seems like there was a whole lot of dumping 
and disregard uh, and ignorance in concern uh, when it comes to the environment at the time. With with thing, even just these two instances, these massive instances that may not have come to light till later, like Love Canal and the Operation Chase, it's just those were really big deals. And whether it came to light later or not, they both happened in the same like five year clump of time, and it's just like wow. I mean. <laughs> I don't. I don't even. I don't even know what to say. Um, so we're just gonna move on. I mean, seriously, there's there's nothing else I can say. Dumping is bad in terms of when it, you know chemicals <laughs> and uh, toxic waste. Um, as always, uh, the Comics Code Authority uh, was not revised until um, January twenty eighth of nineteen seventy one. The on-sale date of this issue, again, August 25th of 1970. Uh, so the original draft of the Comics Code Authority, uh, as it was put forth in October 26th of 1954, is still in place. So, what issues, if any, did this particular uh, issue of um, Green Lantern, Green Arrow violate within the comics code well not much in all three of these instances of course are dependent on how you bend the rules i mean how you bend the rules to apply to the uh, instance in this issue so all of these are from general standards part a crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice or to inspire others with the desire to imitate criminals this one, again, all three of these are going to be a little bit loose, so kind of apply them how you will. Uh, sympathy for the criminal. You feel sympathy for Hal, Ali, and the Guardian when they're taken to this planet uh, and just kind of given an unfair trial to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice. Same situation. Additionally, uh, if maybe this is a commentary on something... Uh, uh, on like Operation Chase or something like Operation Chase that was conducted by our government to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice. If this is a commentary on what our uh, military was doing, dumping stuff into the ocean at the time, I mean, again, it's all in how you apply it. Uh, part three, policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Again, this applies to both, um, uh, mainly to the judge situation on Gallo, on the planet Gallo, but also, again, depending on what D Denny and Neil are specifically referencing here in this time, uh, it could be applied to that. And lastly, number six, in every instance, good shall, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Did we see anybody get punished for the dumping of chemicals into the waters? Yes, but it was the Guardian and had nothing to do with any of the people on the ship or the people responsible for that waste. Okay. Technically, the Guardian did not get punished for his misdeed. So, what about that? And good triumphing over evil. Again, what is your definition of good and what is your de definition of evil? Again, guys, I know this is really stretching it, but again, the whole, you know, I view this podcast as spinoff. Part of my job is to, even if it's only slightly applicable, I still need to bring it up, just in case. Because some of these issues, I will give you, some of these issues um, 
are going to be like this, in which I'm kind of stretching to apply the comics code, uh, it being a blatant uh, uh, disregard of certain policies within the comics code. I will give you that. But there are other issues that are absolutely this comic railing against the established rules of the comics code authority. Uh, and I figure with some consistency, I should just, if it can, if the rules can be stretched and applied to this, uh, to the comic, I might as well bring it up just in case. Now, before we leave, I don't have feedback for you, at least not traditional feedback. I do, however, have printed here in my hands. These are two pages I printed out screenshots of some feedback. Not for this podcast, but for these this comic book series. I am talking about the first printed letter columns for this Green Lantern, Green Arrow series. Now, normally... Um, when covering the uh, matter, so the back matter such as this, uh, little editorial things uh, of that nature, uh, in in comics we try to maybe paraphrase and take one thing at a time. Um, the, however, this is the first uh, uh, first of many letters columns for Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and that's a big deal. Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, as you guys well know by this point, is known for being an incredibly historic comic book series. Um, not just for pushing the boundaries of comics, uh, being more socially relevant, socially conscious, uh, making people believe that comics aren't just for kids, that comics can be about something, that comics can uh, make people more aware of the things in their lives, so on and so forth. It changed the medium. I mean, there were so many different things. Now, because the series is so historic, especially the first uh, few issues that are written and drawn by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, it is extremely expensive to collect these issues. And the trade paperback versions of these issues do not reprint the letter columns. So, I want to give everybody a heads up the end of every episode, so long as there is a letter column, I will be reading every single word of every single one of these to you. If you want to stop listening right now, that is totally fine. I know I've already been droning on for about 40 minutes, and this is typically where the episode would end. Now, after Denny O'Neill and Neil Ad- or after Neil Adams rather leaves the series, Green Lantern, Green Arrow becomes less socially conscious and therefore less historic. And those issues, uh, while still somewhat expensive, don't command the hefty price the first, you know, 12 or so issues of this series do. So we don't necessarily have to worry about reading the every single word of the letter column all the way through. So let me qualify by saying, so long as the letter column references the historic Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams work within Green Lantern, Green Arrow, I'm going to read every single one of these letter columns. Now, I want to tell you why I'm doing this. If you guys listen to our interview with Jackie Nodell as part of the um, uh, Green Lantern 75th anniversary, you heard us review 
Green Lantern number one. And I mean the very first Green Lantern number one. I'm talking about the Green Lantern quarterly stuff with Alan Scott from the 1940s. We read every single word of a couple of pages out of there because those issues are so very hard to find. Now these issues here are not very hard to find, but they're very expensive to acquire. And you're not going to get these letter pages reprinted anywhere else. So, for this pure historical significance, for getting the reaction, quote-unquote, live as it happened, as this series was coming out of the public, and just for the sake of completion, I'm going to be reading all these letter columns. So, no more explanation. We are starting off with the title of the letter column is called Green Lantern's Mail Shoot. Our first letter comes from Carl Gafford in New Milford, Connecticut. And there's a reason that that, sounds, that name sounds familiar to you if you're a longtime comics fan. Dear Editor, I didn't think you could surpass Green Lantern 76, but I'm glad to be proven wrong. The new Green Lantern is fabulous, and Green Arrow is a welcome addition. It's about time GL stood up and realized that injustice included blood-sucking slumlords, bigots, racists, and false liberals. And Green Arrow is the only one who could have shown him the light. G.A. is the most dynamic and real character DC has. He sees things as they are, while most heroes are caught up in the wonder of their super-powered quote-unquote thing. Of course, there are going to be many who will say that G.L. is taking a backseat in his own mag. Well, that's true in a way, but only because G.L. doesn't know which side is up right now. GL needs a figure like GA to lead him, show show him the truth. After all these years of fooling himself, you can't expect him to be as good a hero as GA overnight. It takes time for understanding, for caring. Otherwise, Green Lantern is at the top. Denny O'Neill turned out turned an about face from his campy GL stories to the dead serious tales he writes for the JLA. Never before has GL been so real, so palpable. This sense of reality is increased by Neil Adams, the only artist who could draw the new GL. When Neil draws a slum tenement, you are there. Pictures of TV, twisted TV aerials in the dawn, you're looking at him. Real fists crash against real faces, and the real faces are creased with real emotion. The clincher of this issue was when GL's ring lost the power to protect him from mortal danger. I often wondered why they went to all the trouble of finding a man born without fear when the ring would protect the wearer from fearful calamity. Now GL can stand on his own two feet and be a real man. In case you haven't already gathered by my letter, I am 200% in favor of your new Green Lantern format. Keep up the unparalleled work. Carl Gafford, New Milford, Connecticut. And from the editor, to the Gaff, as the above correspondent is known to in fandom, as well as to all of our readership, we assure you that there, there's no percentage in resting one's laurels, even 200%, and we'll be shooting for higher and higher ratings with each issue. Carl Gafford has been working in the comics industry for years, and it's nice to see that uh, other uh, comics uh, creators are reading and acknowledging the amazing work that uh, is being put forth in the pages of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. The next letter. Dear Editor, somewhere back in my teenage years, I picked up 
a copy of Showcase and flipped out over a great new character, Green Lantern. Years later, my roommate asked me why I, still an aficionado of comics literature, managed to miss an issue of GL in which Green Lantern and Green Arrow set off in a pickup truck to discover America. Of course, GL went on my shopping list. I'll, it'll stay there, too, if GL number 77 was an indication of what usually happens between the covers of this magazine. Kudos to Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, and Frank Giacoya. Uh, Giacoya? Yeah, I guess. I've long admired the work of Adams and Giacoya. Frank is undoubtedly one of the best inkers in the world, always managing to bring out the best... Always managing to bring out the best in a penciler's work and never obscuring it. In this case, there was a lot of good to bring out. The sight of Slapper Soam's beer belly alone was worth the 15 cents. But what made this issue stand out was the plot and dialogue, particularly the dialogue. What a relief to hear superheroes speaking in a language that approaches everyday 20th century American English and not in ruptured Chaucerian or contrived slang. The characterizations of GL and GA were fine. GL reserved, sensitive, confused, hiding behind a wall of habit, but at the same time proud, generous, and thirsty for knowledge. GA brash, headstrong, spoiling for a fight, spunky, sure of himself and his powers. You have given new hope to an old fan. The old stale characters needn't be stale. I won't wish you success because I know success will be inevitable. Green Lantern and Green Arrow go together marvelously. Please don't split them up for another 20 or 30 issues, at least. T.B. Snurtlegrass, New York, New York. And the editor asks, which prompts us to ask our readers, uh, which prompts us to ask our readers aid and comfort. Should Green Lantern and Green Arrow team up indefinitely or split up after a certain number of issues? I mean, I personally, if I was reading this as it came out, I mean, I know how historic the run went, but... It's Greenland. I agree with with Carl Gafford about uh, GL kind of taking a backseat during the series uh, in his own title. Um, I mean, we get good stories out of it, so I think it's worth it. But uh, you know, eventually, all good things must come to an end. So, Green Lantern should return to the the mainstay of his his own title. But that's just me. <laughs> Plus, it's hard to know what's going to happen. So, uh, and the next letter, dear editor. Now, this one's particularly interesting. I work with adolescents at a nearby state hospital, and on a recent visit read Green Lantern Green Arrow number 77 with one of your, with one of the children. I would like to compliment you on your attempts to help young Americans gain an understanding of what our country is supposed to represent. The speech by Green Arrow on page 7 about authority, the self-questioning by Green Lantern on page 11, and the yellow banners on page 17 and 19 describing the results of war are an excellent departure from the comics of several years ago. However, your treatment of the subject of America now as to what America should be in the departing words of the two heroes leaves much to be desired. It makes me want, it makes one think about whether the two men are simply in their professions to use unjustifiable violence in superficial attempts to fight the bad guy. Leaving the town for the, quote, pretty part of America is typical of an America that will help, of America that will help the poor and oppressed only so long as it is enjoyable to the partic to the participants. When real sacrifice is demanded, 
when pleasures must be suppressed to help those who don't enjoy the simple advantages like being able to buy comics as a child, the respectable Americans decline, asking why they should be the ones. I hope you will continue the social education possible in your magazine, depicting your men as not glorying in violence, but in sacrificing some of their time for real help to the people they begin to rescue from oppression by our present America. Charles N. Green, Canton, New York. No response from the editor. Dear Editor, the hint of promise in GL 76 came to life in 77. Denny O'Neill did not cop out, as the saying goes currently and thereby provided the reader with an excellent sequel with his journey to Desolation script. The, in, the improvement in the series is almost unimaginable now that the new Green Lantern is on the stands. Hopefully sales will skyrocket, thereby proving that the mass media can, indeed, see something else in the comic strips beyond pure imagination that is an integral part to any comic strip, but it has, for two issues, captured something more. It is dared to comment. It is dared to have protagonists that are less than perfect. It is daring to begin social commentary. What praise can be lavished upon all concerned for even attempting all of these things? This is manna from heaven for all those stout defenders of the comic strip who cry to deaf ears that, is it, that, is, that it is indeed an important art form. And now GL symbolizes much of that potential. Beyond characterization, O'Neill has, for the most part, also inserted crisp and near-natural dialogue. The relationship between GL and GA is being handled effectively. The villains were depicted visually with superb skill. Take a bow, Neil Adams. The two lead villains were, were memorable as compared to the rather mundane villains the reader receives nowadays. The battle scenes were also equally effective. Come on, let's go find the pretty part of America. Hopefully GL and GA will illuminate a bit of that as they continue to reveal the, the socially corrupt parts. Donald F. McGregor, North Kingstown, Rhode Island. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, Journey to Desolation was ludicrous in its pomposity. So GL is finding that the world isn't all black and white, eh? You wouldn't think it to read his latest adventures. Last issue's number 76, the bad guy, was pretty easy to spot. This time, the subtle evil takes the form of Slapper Soames and his Nazis. Nazis, of course, are a pervasive, little noticed influence in daily life. Slapper is over 30, has a beer belly, and smokes a cigar. Presumably, he speaks with a southern accent. The good guy is a long-haired, guitar-playing kid with soulful eyes and a social conscience, a typical member of today's idealistic, enlightened young, of which I am a card-carrying member. GL must be really dumb if he can't tell at first glance that cigars are bad and guitars are good. I laughed out loud at that part. Sometimes I suspect O'Neill of doing deliberate parodies of himself. Sometimes he, write class he writes classics. In this issue, he gave us corny lines like, the heat lays over man and beast alike like a sheet of lead. I am not impressed. About that other green-clad character, the one with the beard and the arrows, how about giving him his own magazine? Anything to get him out of Green Lantern and get everybody's favorite Emerald Warrior back to Coast City, Carol Ferris, and Sanity. Scott Dickerson, Los Alamitos, California. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, a true landmark in comic literature 
my comment on GL77. By means of a partner for GL, Mr. O'Neill has truly brought out a character yet to be equaled in the DC or any other line of comics. He has made GL a real character, without overdoing the emotions, a fault of many other writers. Another reason for my exuberance is that GL and GA are two people. GA, the wisecracking moralist, and GL, the Steppenwolf, trying to find his identity, and piece by piece, finding it. Together with the humanizing of the Guardian the Fantab artwork, and the moral theme which plays along the story, the magazine fulfills my every hope of what a comic should be. Earl A. Roy Jr., Unionville, Connecticut. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, GL number 77 was ugly, ugly, ugly. I don't believe I've ever seen such ugliness ever presented within the pages of a comic mag. Yet any effort to deny the presence of such ugliness within society would be futile. Denny O'Neill now adds his regal name to that ever-growing list of muckrakers who persistently seek to tell it like it is in the inevitable discovery that like it is is all too often ugly, ugly, ugly. As Green Arrow observed in the previous issue, some hideous moral cancer is rotting our very souls. Rigid mountain barriers exist between malignant blotches such as desolation and Appalachia and the civilized society we dwell within, yet this overwhelming ugliness daily penetrates our very lives. Drowning in apathy, many do nothing to confront, to overcome it. Some meekly allow themselves to fall under the influence of ignorant demagogues like Jacob, who use their petty aspirations for personal benefit. We see this occurring constantly, whether the issues be pollution, the Vietnam and Cambodian wars, or roadside littering. Man, endowed with brains, hearts, and bodily appendages, can somehow convert this good earth into a moral facsimile of that Garden of Eden whose, do whose doors were so long ago closed to us. Instead, we are drifting even further from an earthly paradise, and this militant, aggressive society is being transformed into one tremendous animal farm. Because of its ugliness, Denny O'Neill's story was beautiful. The recognition that our country's situation is ugly in itself is beautiful, since that is one right, since that is one right step to the abolishment of that ugliness. Beautiful, too, is the very fact that a story of this caliber was printed within the pages of a comic magazine like Green Lantern, accessible to the juveniles of this nation. False demagogues will always exist in our society. We will never entirely overcome them. But by portraying the nation as it really exists, Denny O'Neill will perhaps resurrect some of the public form, will perhaps resurrect some of the public from the mire of apathy overcoming it and perhaps even stir up some constructive action. Action is beautiful when it overcomes ugliness. Jim Vecchio, Bridgeport, Connecticut. No comment from the editor. So that is the uh, letters column for, uh, for from Green Lantern number 80, referring, of course, mostly to uh, Green Lantern number 77 with... Uh, little bit of commentary from uh, in regards to uh, 78 of course uh, tossed in there as well uh, in the occasional uh, in the occasional uh, uh, letter there uh, I do have to agree that first one from Carl Gafford uh, where he says uh, I often wondered why they went through all the trouble of finding a man born without fear when the rain would protect the wearer from fearful calamity 
I didn't really ever think about that until now, actually. So uh, good on you, Carl. <laughs> Several years later, um, I did not ever really think about that. Yeah, um, you find a man without fear, and you give him a weapon that can't kill him, thereby eliminating the need for fear in the first place. What do you need a man without fear for when there's nothing for him to fear? Makes sense. I do like that. Um, uh, again, the notion of not splitting up uh, Green Lantern and Green Harrow for uh, a, a long time uh, is one that sticks around because it goes on for the series goes along for a long time. But um, yeah, Green Lantern should, as I said earlier, should get his his uh, his own title back. Um, in terms of Scott Dickerson's letter, uh, saying, uh, kind of the only, um, upset letter in the, in the whole bunch, um, you know, I guess there are, um, detractors to everything in, in life, even the most historic of, uh, of series, but as, as you can tell largely throughout this letter column, um, people are being moved not just to write letters into DC, to to uh, comment on the story, but are taking the time to write some very eloquent, uh, well worded, and impassioned letters to DC about how much they love this series. Um, at times, you know, they you know, especially the the final letter from Jim uh, of the ugly, 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 and using the word ugliness, uh, ugly and ugliness throughout his letter was. Uh, you know, at first glance, you think it's going to be a a letter detracting the series, but it's actually saying, you know, kind of good on you for portraying the ugliness uh, and being brave about it. So, uh, again, uh, there's there's not much commentary there. This is uh, for me to react to the reactions of other people uh, would 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 not be a, a, a very worthwhile discussion for us to have, uh, one sided as it may be. So. I'm just going to leave it there, guys. Uh, again, uh, this, the upcoming issues of Green Lantern, Green Arrow will have more uh, more letters columns in them. So we'll be able to uh, see how public opinion develops as we go. couple of things, guys. Uh, I do, would, I of course, would always, as always, would love feedback for these episodes. Um, I feel I am getting a little stale sometimes as I as I do these episodes by myself. So uh, any um, confirmation of that feeling from you guys that you feel the same, um, or you know maybe it's all in my head. It's up to you. Um, would be great one way or the other. Uh, additionally, I would also like to know if you guys would like me to continue reading the Green Lantern uh, letter columns, the Green Lantern Green Arrow letter columns uh, beyond. Uh, the involvement of Neil Adams. Uh, Denny O'Neill continues to write the series long after uh, Neil Adams leaves, but of course the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff is the stuff everybody knows this series for. So once we're done with the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff, do you want me to continue reading those letter columns so that you can also see how the public reacts once Neil Adams leaves and the stories become more spacey, campy, weird, rather than social commentary would you like to see that uh or do you think me just reading these outright is is boring to you uh, again the reason i do this uh is so that you can have at least audibly some of the snapshots of 
some material that you're not going to see reprinted for a long time. Um, so that was Green Lantern number 80. And uh, next up, of course, we got uh, 81. And um, that might be out in the next month or two. Uh, hopefully my move on Saturday goes smoothly. Uh, internet gets set up. Um, I've been uh, kind of slowly acquiring a couple of things to uh, increase the quality of this podcast in terms of audio um, and editing and stuff like that. Uh, those probably won't take place for a long time, uh, at least uh, until maybe December or so. Uh, but just for instance, uh, I found a mixing board on sale and I might be able to do some more, uh, you know, kind of make crisp up my uh, my Mark's audio in the future episodes and my, of course, my personal audio and uh, when I'm doing solo shows and stuff like that. Maybe uh, reduce the amount of editing I have to do and so on and so forth. But the, I've been talking for over an hour now uh, or about an hour now. So I just want to close this out. So if you guys have some feedback for me, whether or not you uh, like me droning on by myself or not, uh, whether you think I'm being dull or not, uh, I feel like I am sometimes, let me know. Uh, if you want me to continue reading that letter column, let me know. If you have any commentary on anything in these episodes, let me know. For instance, I just kind of picked uh, uh, the Love Canal disaster and uh, the Operation Chase stuff as the more prevalent uh, things in regards to environmental disasters of the 1970s in regards to chemical dumping. Um, if you know more about what was happening in this issue, uh, and uh, maybe this particular social issue, um, maybe the particular news article uh, that was happening at the time that maybe Denny O'Neill, the specific instance that they were kind of referencing, uh, I would love to hear it. If you know more about these, the Operation Chase or the uh, Love Canal disaster, let me know. Um, if you've got personal anecdotes about it, let me know. And that's going to be, uh, we got two uh, ways for you to do that. Email lanterncast at gmail.com, voicemail 708lantern. Uh, there's a three minute time limit on those voicemails, but please, please, please uh, shoot me a voicemail and we'll do it. Uh, and if you can't leave uh, everything you got to say in a three-minute voicemail, leave several, and I'll edit them together. Uh, just make it easy on me, will you? <laughs> uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All three of those support hashtags, so use the hashtag GLCast to find us on all three. Um, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you listen to us on one of those or both, please do not hesitate to leave us a positive review. Uh, as of right now, as it stands on Stitcher, we've got one review, and we'd love to hear more. So even if you guys don't listen to us on Stitcher, head over to Stitcher and, and, and leave us some reviews so we uh, have a little bit more of a, a collection for people to scroll through and see if they want to listen to us or not. Um, and, of course, you guys can visit our website at www.lanterncast.com. All right, guys. Uh, next episode, hopefully coming out sometime next week. Uh, normally, we try and short shoot for Tuesday postings of episodes, but because I'm moving on Saturday and I'm assuming doing a little bit more moving and unpacking on Sunday, um, we probably won't have time to record. So, unfortunately, just kind of expect that, that uh, next week's episode to be probably around... Thursday, Friday, and uh, or maybe next weekend, if not the following week. So please, please, please work with us, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you uh, got something out of it. And uh, again, shoot as much feedback as you can to us. All right, guys, uh, I'm rambling, uh, and I'm very tired. So enjoy your week. 
and uh, uh, pray everything goes well for me so that we can get more episodes to you guys out ASAP. All right, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>